You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. And thank you very much for joining us. Um, A number of colleagues have actually flown in, I could say, for this meeting. Um, That would, would be more or less true, but not entirely, but for a series of meetings. So particularly welcome those who got off an aeroplane uh, this morning to be with us here in London Um, uh, and a big welcome to those who are joining online uh, as well it's your event as much as it is an event for all of us here in the room together at ODI Um, so welcome Um, my name is Sam Bickersteth uh, and I'm the chief executive of CDKN uh, and this is a collaborative Um, uh, event, seminar, workshop, call it what you will, seminar I think, uh, together with ODI uh, and very grateful for the partnership with ODI that we've had around um, climate compatible development uh, and the Paris actions over the last few years. Uh, And this paper is the culmination of quite a lot of analysis and thinking about where we are uh, with the core of the Paris the implementation of the Paris Agreement, and that is the NDCs, the Nationally Determined Contributions. Mainstreaming Climate Compatible Development is the title of a new CDKN book, and I shouldn't encourage it to be on your bookshelf, but it should be in your, in your e-book shelf. Um, it's available on our website. Um, and the word I want to emphasise there is mainstreaming. The NDCs really emerge, as I mentioned, as the principal mechanism for implementation of the Paris Agreement. And they will only work if they are mainstreamed or integrated into national development planning, budgeting and implementation. And I emphasise it's not just the planning, it's, it's, it's actually moving from the rhetoric to the reality. And, and, and as, as you know, it's, it's a hard ask to move from signing up Uh, at international level in the momentum of the Paris Agreement um, and then the ratification which followed um, 10 months, nine months later um, and and then actually doing stuff at national level on the ground with actors, municipalities, businesses, budgets, um, communities uh, and sectors. Well, this paper which... uh, um, which is going to be presented by colleagues from ODI and the CDKN teams today, um, draws on a framework which ODI has evolved over the last few years to think about these issues of, of implementing climate um, actions and test this against seven countries uh, from the set of countries in which CDKN has been working. Uh, and it offers some propositions around... Um, this integration, or we could say mainstreaming challenge, of the NDCs, because the NDCs are not going to work if they're stuck in a box and seen as belonging just in the Ministry of Climate Change or or Environment. It's about how they sit through the whole economic uh, and social um, implementation of governments and other stakeholders. 
so that's what we're going to discuss today. Um, and um, in terms of the format here, um, uh, Neil Bird, um, who's from the Home Team, who's a senior research fellow here um, in the Climate and Energy Programme, uh, and has been working uh, across the work of ODI and CDKEN for the past few years, um, is going to present these 10 propositions. Um, we're then going to have uh, some commentary um, from a star lineup of CDKEN colleagues. Um, first of all, on my left, Claire Monkhouse, who's just come back from a workshop in Kampala with a number of other countries looking at exactly this issue of implementing and applying um, a framework on N N NDC implementation to the real challenges of, of four countries. Claire will speak, followed by um, Margaret, known as Maggie Kamal, from uh, the CDKN Kenya team, who, who is with us today to particularly share the experience in Kenya. Um, and welcome to you as well, Maggie. And then finally, Shanaz Musa, my colleague from the CDKN Africa team, who's a director of South South North, um, who works, I mean, you work internationally and across Africa, but is going to particularly pick up on the South Africa aspect uh, and, and see what's the relevance of this NDC implementation framework in that context. So after their comments, we'll definitely open it to the floor. And by the floor, I mean those online. So I would encourage those online to, 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 to send uh, electronically your questions early. Uh, don't don't leave don't, don't leave it till um, uh, one twenty nine UK time to do that because it will be too late by that point in time. So we'll we'll leave at least thirty minutes for question and answer session. So that's the plan. Uh, and with that, I'd like to turn to you, Neil. Now, Neil's suffering from a sore throat or some bug, which I think your family's generously shared with you. So. Um, you might need the water as you go. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Sam. And yes, um, my apologies, first of all, for my voice this afternoon. I seem to have succumbed to a summer cold, as occasionally happens. I'm going to speak to this paper. And this paper examines the extent to which NDC commitments in developing countries are being integrated into national development planning. The paper aims to identify key issues that will support this integration and lead to successful NDC implementation. The approach taken has been to develop a set of 10 propositions related to the effectiveness of 1. the national policy and planning processes, 2. institutional arrangements, and 3. the allocation of public resources, which, if followed, will support the integration of NDCs into national development planning. Of course, such propositions should probably carry a public health warning. Um, they have general but not universal application. They aim to provide a framework that then needs to be tailored according to the unique characteristics of each country. To explore the utility of this approach, we drew on the experience of seven CDKN country programs in Ethiopia, Bangladesh, India, Kenya, Pakistan, Peru, and Uganda. Our working assumption was that meeting NDC commitments will depend on the national priority they are given, and the integration of NDC actions 
into national development planning is necessary to secure this recognition, as well as the resources required for implementation. Our first proposition is that NDC should be consistent with national development policies and plans. In all the countries reviewed, it was apparent that the first NDCs had been prepared in knowledge of both the national climate change policy and, crucially, the national development plan. We also found that the opportunity for integration appears to be facilitated when the planning cycles of these different processes coincide. However, the link to national development plans presupposes that such plans act as the main expression of government's economic policy. Whilst this remains true in many low-income countries, the centrality of a national plan appears to be diminishing in larger economies, where subnational and sector development plans feature more prominently, as in India and Pakistan. In low-income countries, there is also a case to ensure that NDC proposed actions are set within sector action plans to allow for their early implementation. And this is a theme I know Maggie will come back to later. The second proposition is that NDC should follow smart design principles, because if early action is to be secured, Climate change objectives need to be clearly understood by the implementing agencies. So objectives that allow for smart targets to be constructed, those that are specific, measurable, agreed upon, realistic and time-bound, for that acronym, it's a well-established approach to establishing clarity over objective setting. Now, all seven countries listed both mitigation and, equally importantly, adaptation objectives in their first NDCs. However, whilst the mitigation objectives are well-defined, allowing for ready integration into national development planning, adaptation objectives continue to be expressed in very broad descriptive terms. It may be that adaptation targets may become clearer as early project experience broadens, highlighting the need to recognize adaptive approaches to objective setting when it comes to adaptation. The third proposition states that NDCs should have broad national support. Now, we found that consultation processes are an established part of public policy development in all these countries. In particular, NDC development has seen two complementary approaches to securing broad national support. First, the establishment of small informed groups of technical experts who can deal with the specialist content. And secondly, larger participatory events that help in awareness raising and importantly, consensus building. The fourth proposition is that NDC should have strong political backing. The approval of the NDC was made by the Prime Minister or the Cabinet of Government in every country reviewed. And we believe that's a significant result in that it has created awareness 
at the highest level of government and allows for some consideration of integrating climate change targets into broader national policy and helps to avoid policy conflicts. This may represent a potential benefit of tying national climate change policy to international commitments in that it draws in the head of state and those around him or her. Our fifth proposition is that NDC development should have clear institutional leadership. And there are indications here of an emerging shift in ownership of climate change policy. With, whilst ministries of environment are still either leading or being a key player in NDC development, there is greater involvement of other ministries. For example, Peru had a multi-sectoral team to develop the NDC. And in this way, NDC implementation is assisting the integration of climate change into development planning through securing ownership across a number of government ministries. The sixth proposition calls for national coordination for climate change and development actions. And here we found two main approaches to securing coordination in the case study countries. These can be characterized as policy-focused and implementation-focused coordination. For the former, several countries have instigated national climate change councils, often chaired by the head of state. The second approach focuses on securing the involvement and coordination between different ministries as part of the development of specific public investment programs. And for example, this approach has been followed by Ethiopia's Ministry of Finance and Economic Cooperation to good effect, we believe. The seventh proposition is that NDC institutions should respond to local development needs. National development planning in all seven countries includes the aim of reducing poverty. One way to secure the integration of NDC commitments with national development planning is therefore for such commitments to recognize the needs of vulnerable groups. With agriculture continuing to dominate poor people's livelihoods in many countries, the developmental co-benefits of rural mitigation strategies can be significant in terms of responding to those local development needs. However, many agricultural development programs depend on local government agencies. Therefore, the extent to which decentralization processes have advanced in a country and capacitated local government agencies is influencing the speed by which NDC commitments can be integrated into local development planning. The eighth proposition is that NDC spending should be part of normal national budget planning. The ease by which NDC actions can be identified in the national budget system is dependent on the budget classification and the funding channels in use. With regards to the former, program-based budgets that classify spending by strategic outcomes raise the possibility of identifying climate change-related public spending. This type of, of budget classification is now being introduced in Ethiopia, Uganda, and Kenya, for example. 
With regard to the channels through which public <coughs> funds flow, the use of national climate funds is an innovation that aims to mobilize additional financial resources, including for NDC implementation. National climate funds have been established in Bangladesh and Ethiopia and are now legislated for in Kenya and Pakistan. The ninth proposition is that NDC spending should be monitored and reported upon. Confidence in the implementation of NDC commitments will rest in part on the necessary financial resources being released each year to support climate change public investments. In each country, records of relevant spending follow the budget process. Therefore, where the end-of-year expenditures can be compared to the start-of-year budget in a consistent manner, the public funding of NDC actions could potentially be tracked. An example of such a system developing, again, coming back always to the great example of Kenya, is Kenya, where annual reporting on government expenditure is now contained in sector medium-term expenditure framework reports. And finally, our tenth proposition is that NDC spending should be subject to national oversight and scrutiny. Interestingly, national parliaments appear to have played a very limited role in the development of nationally determined contributions thus far. In part, this reflects the fact that in the countries reviewed, policy development looks more to the executive rather than the legislative branch of government. However, there is potential for parliaments to play a greater role in NDC implementation, particularly on financing. And this should strengthen national and local accountability systems. So, overall, the evidence we have gathered on integrating climate change commitments, NDC commitments, into national development planning suggests at the present time, first, that the policy and planning framework in the seven countries examined is generally supportive of mainstreaming climate change actions into broader national development planning. Second, however, there are challenges in securing the institutional effectiveness over the delivery of NDC commitments, often reflecting different capacities across sectors and different levels of government. And finally, and this is sort of always my particular interest because I think it's the weakest link in the chain, the financing of NDCs remains unclear in all the countries reviewed, being to, dependent to date mostly on national budget allocations for which there has been limited monitoring of the relevant climate change spending. So on that, I'll finish. Thank you. Thank you very much, Neil. That's, um, it was nearly one minute per proposition, so I congratulate you uh, on that. Uh, just a little bit over, and I was sort of thought you'd just use up your extra four minutes on, on the finance, but you were very balanced across the ten. And Neil, as you know, has worked a lot on, on, on climate, public expenditure, and institutional review, CPIRs. And so that draw, this draws on that body of learning, but I think it's a, it's a good broad assessment that, that doesn't just... Uh, focus on the finance side. So thank you very much for that. Claire, you got off a, a flight from Kampala yesterday or the day before uh, and were meeting with 
for officials from four countries and experts from four countries kind of reviewing the state of implementation of um, the NDCs. And I, I guess the question is, is this a framework that can help accelerate and move that process forward? Would you like to share some of your thoughts? Yeah, I, th I think so. And um, I mean, just as context, CDKN's been supporting the governments of Kenya, Uganda, Zambia and Bangladesh with their kind of early planning for NDC implementation. And the meeting in Kampala last week was to bring those um, four governments together to quite a small meeting where we could discuss over two days kind of early experiences and lessons um, with, with um, planning for NDC implementation. Um, and I think the, the kind of issues kind of most front of mind for those in the room were around the, the mandates for coordinating at, at this stage at, at the national level and the, the, the challenges around cross-government working and coordination with um, sectoral ministries and also coordinating at the subnational level. Um, and I think it was kind of acknowledges that, that these challenges aren't new. Um, the NDCs as a process and the Paris Agreement are new, but the challenges around climate change mainstreaming um, aren't, but it, the NDC provides a kind of new impetus and there are new requirements that, that, that they'll need to respond to. Um, so, I mean, obviously there's 10 propositions, so I won't provide a reflection against all of them, but I think the, the two key things that stood out for me were around the need for broad national support, so proposition number three, and then proposition number nine around, um, it's actually MRV of finance in, in the report, but I think MRV more broadly um, was a key issue for those present. And then as a kind of cross-cutting theme, um, the need for capacity development um, to, to support this whole process. Um, so if I could just take those three three points in turn. So proposition number three around the need for broad national support, um, clearly we're going to need that in place inside and outside of government, um, sectoral, national, subnational um, level in order to be able to deliver on the commitments that have been made. Um, there were four key points that I think emerge around this theme. Um, Firstly, have, have the right people been involved to date? Um, as Neil said, the INDC process itself was really participative, but um, now taking a step back after Paris, um, the people that we spoke to were reflecting on, you know, were they the right people in the room? Have we engaged at the right level within ministries? Are the key stakeholders that actually we should have engaged with and now we need to um, sort of reach out? Um, linked to that, there's a difference between engaging for action and awareness raising. So there is a need for general awareness raising sort of uh, across the country, um, linked to the need to kind of develop a mandate, I think, for government and, and others to take action. Um, but also, who are those key stakeholders that actually need to, um, to support NDC implementation on the ground? Do, have we identified who those key stakeholders are yet um, and in particular there was a feeling that there was a need to engage better with the private sector and at the subnational level. Um, in terms of private sector um, I think a lot of us often talk about the private sector as if it's a homogenous group but um, clearly it isn't and it's a case I think of identifying who is it in the private sector who's really instrumental to um, supporting implementation on the ground um, from your industrial sectors down to your you know your big um, banks insurance um, companies etc 
and for governments what kind of enabling environment needs to be in place to kind of really mobilize that that private sector um, for in, in terms of subnational engagement um, clearly that a lot will need delivering at the subnational level and um, in, a, in a number of countries where we work those subnational arrangements are quite complex um, and there's a need to kind of reach out, and I think Maggie may say more about this, but there was a feeling that there was a need to kind of reach out and connect more with the subnational level, and the focus so far has been very much on getting the national coordination in place. Um, I think both of those raised an issue around resourcing and, you know, the time and cost of engaging at the subnational level and with um, lots of different... Um, groups um, within within a sector so that's I think no small challenge um, and then finally in terms of this this broader support point um, was the highlighted role for Parliament so linking to the proposition um, number 10 about that national scrutiny in particular and the need to engage parliaments given that they're the ones that are going to be signing off national budgets and the importance of integrating NDCs and climate change into international budgetary um, processes. Um, so the second proposition I want to touch on is, is around MRV. And as I said, this is a more general point around MRV, not just linked to NDC spending, which, which of course is, is really important. Um, so what and when? I think quite early on in the session last week, we were, were thinking about, well, there's already lots of activities in, in all of these countries around adaptation and, and mitigation. At what point are they classed as being part of NDC implementation? Um, and, and then how do you accurately monitor and report on that and avoid um, double counting? And, and I think there's still some uncertainty around what additional requirements the Paris Agreement and NDCs add around around MRV. Um, so, yeah, a lot of that detail is still being worked out. Um, the second point is around data availability. So the, there has been um, technical assistance provided to a number of countries around developing MRV systems, um, software, um, training of staff, but... Um, generally, countries, you know, haven't got good baseline data in place across the board. If there's if there's an, a national baseline, um, there's possibly not always a, a sectoral level baseline, which makes it really difficult then to um, establish targets that are meaningful and to be able to measure progress against those targets. And the the, the agriculture, forestry, and land use sector was one of the ones which really stood out as being a kind of problem area. And for me, that that sounds quite significant given that developing countries are, are including that sector in, in a big way for their kind of mitigation um, commitments. Um, third point is around access to information. So where, where there is data, um, you know, quite often the central coordinating body for NDC implementation isn't the kind of di direct reporting line for those sectoral ministries and sharing of information can often be on a voluntary basis so, um, you know, is there a need for more mandates in place to actually, you know, support that sharing of, of information like, like we've seen, you know, sort of being established in Kenya with the Climate Change Act? And then the, the final point on this was that trying to take a step back from MRV and not seeing it just as fulfilling the kind of international reporting requirements, but actually as a system that would support decision-making in country and... And the fact that this can be such a 
big thing to get right. Um, so perhaps there's that need to kind of stop, start with what's most needed, what's going to be most helpful for um, policy and implementation planning and kind of building up from that over time. Um, so my third um, sort of comment was around capacity and as I said this is a more cross-cutting rather than relating to any particular um, proposition but um, I think at CDKN if we consider capacity as being about finance, human resources as well as skills, knowledge and being able to uh, apply that to, to deliver change. Um, the conversations last week were around you know, what, what capacities are needed to deliver um, the NDC and, and who, who is it that needs to have those capacities. So there's a feeling that there was that sort of need for reflection and to think about the development of a sort of broad capacity development plan and including that as part of the first NDC implementation plan. Um, and in particular, there were three capacities that were raised one was around the capacity to coordinate, so that central coordinating function, which is often a new remit um, for, for an institution. What are the skills that the people within those um, units need to have, and what mandates do they need in that central team? And the second is around MRV as a central team, being able to coordinate that information and then to make sense of it at, at an aggregate level. And the capacity at the sectoral level to be able to use the... Um, the, the tools in, in a way that they can then collect and provide data in a meaningful way. And then finally, as, as you might expect, a big capacity need around climate finance. And the propositions talk about um, national budget allocations, but um, of course, mind was also on access to international climate finance. How do you build capacities around that, and in particular, um, the development of um, bankable proposals and how do you do that in a way that has that kind of lasting change within the country and, and builds the capacity over the longer term Claire, thank you very much of course um, I was about to say well um, would you ask Neil to rewrite the um, this these propositions in view of your capacity but then I remembered you're a co-author so um, but uh, if you were to rewrite it in view of what you learned last week in Uganda do you think this capacity issue needs to be drawn out more across the 10 propositions or do you think it is reflected in the report? Um, I think it is, ref it is reflected however I think if you use the propositions as a kind of an, over, an overall framework and then another product that we developed um, global product was this kind of planning for NDC implementation quick start guide and actually using the two together this goes into much more detail and it goes into detail on, on different thematic areas so I think they, they're quite complementary. Well let me turn now to you Maggie and I think I'd just throw another challenge at you it's called political challenge um, and, of course, uh, you've lived climate politics quite intensively in, in Kenya itself because of the process of the climate change bill over, over a three-year period, I think we, we might say. Uh, but there was uh, an interesting bit of global politics in relation to climate change just last week. You might have noticed, that at least with respect to climate, the G20 appears to become the G19. Where does that put a country like yours in relation when it you know, in response from Marrakesh onwards to the U.S. threat and then actual withdrawal from the Paris Agreement, how does that affect the implementation for a country like Kenya? Could you think on that before we go into your response to the propositions? Sure, thank you. Um, 
I think in response to your question, um, you know, ideally the NDCs are nationally determined contributions. And when uh, countries were writing up these uh, commitments, they, it was really an, you know, an introspective view. What can we do as a country? What structures do we have in place? What does our national uh, development policy say? What do our sectoral policies say? And um, while most countries submitted NDC commitments that, uh, you know, were subject to international commitment, there was also the domestic um, allocation of resources that they put forward. And I think, you know, despite the international global changes that we are witnessing, um, countries remain committed towards implementing the NDCs with domestic resources. I can speak on behalf of Kenya where we know we have put um, some budgetary allocation. You know, it's been incremental over the years, but there, there is budgetary allocation towards, you know, for example, improvement in renewable energy, um, climate smart agriculture. Those are some of the steps, you know, that are being taken at a sectoral level that can be achieved within uh, national, uh, the national resources that are available. Good to know. So, so this framework, you mentioned the resources, um, but there's the, the, the sense of the policy and the institutional components across these 10 lessons. Would you like to sort of draw out some of those that sort of resonate most strongly uh, with you in, in the context of this report and, and Kenya? Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Um, so the, the 10 propositions are um, quite relevant to the Kenya context. I think as as Neil, um, you know, started off by saying that the proposition should not be looked at as a standard uh, application, but each country should look at them and then see how best, um, which of the 10 propositions apply best and how to take them forward. Um, for me, the two that stand out quite clearly are that NDC commitments should be consistent with uh, national development plans. Um, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, Kenya does have a national development plan. It's called the Vision 2030, and that is then divided into five-year um, medium-term plans. And within those medium-term plans, um, it's, it's a planning document that looks across the 24 planning sectors and identifies what are the priority um, actions that each sector should implement. And then it then allocates a budget towards that, and then the MTP, the medium term plan three is medium term plan is then broken down into annual sector, uh, annual sector budgets. So we go down from uh, you know Vision 2030, which is quite a broad view, to the five year uh, development plan, down to one year annual budgets. And the NDC, when when we were preparing the NDC with the government of Kenya, we anchored it in the Vision 2030. We looked at what are the key flagship projects that Kenya wants to, to achieve, where do we want to be in terms of you know, a middle-income economy by the year 2030, and the NDC commitments aimed to achieve um, some of the aspects of the Vision 2030. More recently, we have been working closely with the government on developing the third medium-term plan. So we did have a first and a second medium-term plan, and now we're going into 2018 to 2022, which will have the third medium-term plan. And that has actually borrowed quite a bit from uh, the national, de national determined contribution, so the NDC commitments are feeding into the, the medium-term plan process. Uh, the government has taken a step that uh, we see as quite um, progressive to, in addition to the 24 planning sectors, they now have climate change as a cross-cutting 
sector. So climate, the climate change thematic working group is required to look at the medium-term planning process and engage with all the planning sectors and ensure that climate change considerations are, you know, are given the necessary um, importance that, that it requires. And this is a process that has been going on for the, the last eight months, and we see it going on until the end of the year, where the successful outcome that we hope to see is that in the medium term plan three, climate change will not just be um, you know, something that people look at as that's, that's someone else's responsibility, but each sector will now have um, actions and indicators that they would be able to measure how they're achieving the NDCs and Kenya's uh, long-term climate resilient development pathway. Um, the second proposition that I think stands out as well for the Kenya case is that there's clear institutional leadership. So um, Kenya, in 2016, Kenya passed the Kenya Climate Change Act, uh, 2016, and as Sam mentioned, it was a long uh, journey towards preparing and signing off on uh, the act. It required a lot of uh, stakeholder consultation, um, quite a bit of engagement, both at the national and at the county level, and also including uh, private sector, academia, um, and civil society in, in the consultation process. But the act is quite clear in terms of um, setting out the institutional leadership and ownership that is required for, for climate change. So it establishes a national climate change council and this is a quite a high-level council, as mentioned by, by Neil. It's a high-level council that you know, is chaired by the president and has key representation from cabinet. So we have you know, ministries of environment, uh, energy, agriculture, policy and planning, and treasury represented there. And it also has uh, representatives from private sector, civil society, academia, and indigenous peoples. And the, the role of this council is to ensure that Climate change, um, the Climate Change Act is implemented and that with guidance from the Climate Change Directorate, the Council is able to ensure that there's strategic guidance and oversight across all the key sectors. And I think linking with the NDC, because the NDC priority actions cut across um, Kenya's main economic sectors. So having an institution such as the Council will help to ensure that each sector plays its role. Each sector you know, is aware of what its responsibilities are and with key guidance from the cabinet secretary sitting on the council, they'll then be able to access the budgets that they require or access you know, the capacity that Claire mentioned, the capacity and the resources that are required <coughs> to ensure that. Um, so for me, those are the two propositions that stand out for Kenya. But to touch briefly on um, what Neil outlined as uh, what he saw as the challenges going forward, I think um, he mentioned something around institutional coordination and effectiveness and effective budget mon monitoring and reporting. I think as Kenya, the, the, there are certain propositions that we're heading towards or trying to, to ensure that we achieve that will tackle those challenges. So uh, I mentioned that we're currently working with the medium-term plan three plan process. And the next step after this will be to engage at the county level, so at the sub-national level. And this links um, closely with the proposition number seven, which says NDC institutions respond to local development needs. So once the, when we move down to the county level in terms of the, the planning process there, 
they will borrow largely from what the national uh, plans say. But in writing what we call the county integrated development plans, so they're CIDPs, they're also five-year plan documents that guide what the counties should do. So in writing those CIDPs, the counties will look at what the national de development plans say and try to ensure that the key sectors that stand out for them. So for example, if a county is you know, a largely agricultural productive zone, or for example, it's a largely tourist um, attraction zone, then they'll try to ensure that their activities are aligned with the national development plans, which then align with the NDC implementation and, and achievement of NDC commitments. Um, so we hope to then address that challenge of institutional coordination and effectiveness, particularly at the sub-national level. Um, the other step that I see we are progressing with as, as Kenya is on you know, addressing the challenge of effective budget monitoring and reporting. So as part of uh, the, the national planning and budgeting process, the National Treasury has recently um, undertaken a climate public budget expenditure review, and as a result of that has established climate change budget codes. So within the national planning and budgeting process, there will now be a code specific for climate change that will identify adaptation, mitigation, and cross-cutting activities. And um, each uh, amount of you know, budget allocated, uh, both at national level, uh, level and at county level, will have a code allocated to it, depending on what activity it seeks to address. And that is currently being rolled out in this financial year that just started in, in July. And we hope to see in the next uh, few, year, few months or towards the end of this financial year, we should start seeing some form of reporting around, you know, this is a budget expenditure that's going towards climate adaptation. Start, we should start be able to compare. These are the counties that are spending some money on adaptation. Others are spending money on mitigation activities. Others are spending, you know, on cross-cutting and, uh, for example, disaster risk reduction. So those are, those are some of the things that we hope to see in addressing the challenge of effective budget monitoring and reporting. Um, I think in summary, I'd say that the, the 10 propositions uh, prop here in this document um, outline what would be a, a journey, not necessarily in a stepwise manner, but um, we do know from what Neil has presented that some countries are more advanced than others in certain areas. So you may have, for example, political ownership is higher in one country than another, or you may have budget monitoring is, is better in one country than another, but that should not um, stand out. I, I believe each country has an opportunity to learn from one another and to know that this is a progressive journey. Maggie, thank you very much. It's a very kind of clear image of the kind of, you know, very encouraging story that you bring from Kenya. Just one question before we go to, to, to South Africa, as it were. Um, you mentioned sectoral engagement. So far, is there a particular, are there particular sectors where there's an enthusiasm and there's a real sort of getting into the weeds of NDC implementation? Um, sure. So uh, there are certain sectors in Kenya w which have uh, been very clear from the start about their role in, in terms of achieving the NDC commitments and even just getting Kenya onto a... Uh, on the climate-compatible development journey. So we know, for example, the energy sector has been quite progressive uh, with uh, great strides made in renewable energy development. Um, we also know that the agriculture sector has been quite keen, uh, spe specifically from the adaptation perspective, trying to move towards climate-smart agriculture and um, you know, reducing the effects on livelihoods that climate change is causing. 
certain other sectors which were fairly new towards uh, this NDC preparation process include, so industry, you know, bringing on board the private sector and, um, you know, the manufacturing and industry sectors to understand what role they play in terms of um, energy, in terms of efficient emissions, in terms of energy efficiency, um, in terms of identifying alternative energy sources. So that's, that's been a new area. Another one is um, around transport, which has not been very, uh, you know, it hasn't been a key focus to date. But now we're moving towards, for example, the implementation of a sustainable transport policy that will include, um, you know, efficiency for vehicles and uh, vehicles that are that reduce um, that emit less um, GHG gases. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, nuance there. Shinaz, South Africa is a very different context. Uh, you know, much bigger economy than than Kenya. Bigger manufacturing base. High levels of emissions. Where does the NDC belong in, in, in the complexity of the, the policy uh, environment in South Africa? Yeah, thank you, Sam. And um, building on what Maggie said and what Claire said, um, if I can maybe just give a bit of a background as to how South Africa's NDC came into being and where it's actually sitting. So South Africa's NDC is based on four principles, it's mitigation, adaptation, equity, and implementation. And it was guided very strongly by the National Development Plan and by the National Climate Change Response Strategy. So the NDC speaks directly to those two. So it, it almost makes it easier to implement because the conversation has been ongoing for a long time and now the NDC has almost just highlighted those two uh, planning processes. Drawing on looking at these 10 propositions, I'd like to look at more at where the gap is rather than where um, it aligns with us. And there's a big gap at, from when it comes to implementation around the financing of it. So there's a lot of talk about climate finance for implementation, but the reality is that climate finance alone won't be, a, you, you, you're not going to be able to implement your adaptation and your mitigation me measures. And particularly in South Africa, there's a big, um, your, so some mitigation should be talking to your big emitters, which is your private sector. And in South Africa, it's your big industry. And I think there's a missing in the not yeah in the uh, ten propositions around how government starts engaging with that. So in South Africa, if you look at the NDC, it talks about the carbon tax and carbon budgets, but that has been an ongoing conversation with industry for a long time. So it's not clear how the NDC is going to move that forward. What is clear is that it needs to be moved forward. Um, there's also, in terms of adaptation, there's a big focus on, Claire was talking about capacity. There's a focus on enhanced capacity and particularly at early warning systems. Oh, sorry. Apologies, yeah. I'm sorry about that. 
So, so there's a big focus on capacity building and implementation of um, early warning systems, but that and that again then links to your national climate change response strategy. So I think what's quite nice about South Africa's NDC is that it has as a basis existing plans and policies. Um, there is the issue around how this links to sectoral plans and how it links to your, your local level planning. So at a local level, we have IDPs, which is Integrated Development Plans, that gets rolled out at a provincial level and a local government level, and it talks to how implementation <coughs> will happen, particularly around addressing equity. So the need to then bring your mitigation and adaptation to that is, is quite essential. And then also how that then feeds back up into your NDCs. Um, so, so in terms of the gap, I think there's the mismatch between your national level NDP, your national development plans, and then your sectoral level plans. And then under that with your provincial level and how that then all feeds back up into your budgeting cycles. Um, yeah, which, which in South Africa at the moment seems to be the gap. There also doesn't seem to be, in terms of these propositions and, and what, um, what I've seen in South Africa, that there's any strong consultation with National Treasury. So there's the assumption that requests can be made from national departments to Treasury for the finance to implement, but it's not clear that Treasury is included as a stakeholder in all these processes. And it will be, and, and I think that starting to include Treasury will be quite a shift, but, but I think a much needed one. So the include, inclusion of Treasury and then your big emitters. I think those are the two big um, gaps which, Thanks, yeah. 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 Which came that, across. That, that's, that's great. And I kind of certainly was struck by this aspect of the sort of foundational issue of equity sitting through the, the dialogue that South Africa has led. And of course, it's taken that into the international processes too, uh, yeah, quite fundamentally. That is reflected under your uh, um, proposition number seven, um, uh, and probably is a point, probably could be bubbled up quite strong, more strongly. But that's great. I think we should open up. To, well, I've got a couple of questions from online, but I would like to look in this room and see if there's anyone would like to put a question to the panel. And we have interest. Um, why don't I be inequitable and ask Tracy, whose hand went up first, to make a comment? Would you like to introduce yourself? And you might need to use a mic for online people. Is that true? Yes, please. Tracy, can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Tracy from Oxfam. Um, many NDCs, as we know, have a conditional element, some of them a huge conditional element in terms of finance. And I'm interested how that conditionality is manifesting at a national level in terms of planning. Are we seeing countries starting to develop two-tier plans, uh, or is it being entirely ignored? Yeah, good. Can I just take two or three questions? Just Thanks. So I'm Mark Galloway from the International Broadcasting Trust. I'd like to ask Maggie and Shanaz 
about the role of public support. I think Claire touched on this. How important is it, um, and what is the level of public support in Kenya and South Africa? As we hear, we're used to a lot of skepticism. Maybe there's a lot less there. How, how, how does it manifest itself? And what role does the media play in um, building public support? I'll just add one question from the, from the uh, online audience to mix the floor with the audience, which links perhaps to that. Joy Muller um, asks from studies uh, from the study presented by you, Neil, is there any involvement of local NGOs by government in the mainstreaming effort to realise NDC? So I think the examples of how local NGOs have contributed to to the to the implementation of the NDCs would be interesting to hear from the panelists. So, Maggie, do you want to pick up on any of those th those three questions initially? Yes. Sure. Um, I can start with a question from Tracy on conditionality and how this is uh, being considered. Um, as as I, I mentioned uh, when I was explaining how Kenya has progressed, um, while we were developing uh, our NDC, we did put aside, you know, some of the actions, you know, the actions that were find were conditional to international support. Um, however, the process of developing the NDC at that time was quite a tight uh, process, and I think perhaps, you know, in reflection, not enough time for countries to really think, you know, are we actually doing this through our own national budgets, and do we have to put a conditional element to it? Um, I know that since then, Kenya has moved forward in trying to identify or outline um, clearly what can be achieved through domestic support, uh, what can be achieved through um, private sector investment in country, and perhaps not necessarily relying too much on the conditional aspects, uh, I think moving forward despite the changes that we, we are seeing. Um, so that I think would reflect the position for, for Kenya at the moment. Um, with regards to uh, the role of the media in terms of uh, generating public support, um, so we, the national, the constitution of Kenya uh, stipulates that all uh, plans, policies and plans that are made in Kenya should involve stakeholder consultation. It's now a, a right. Um, and therefore, when we were pre preparing the nationally determined uh, contribution and all climate change uh, policies, there has been an element of stakeholder engagement. And this has been broad to include uh, so private sector, civil society, academia, as well as uh, state and um, non-state actors, the non-traditional uh, actors. And the media has played a key role, particularly we saw this around the, the COP21 in Paris. We saw that the media did undergo some training prior to the COP, and their coverage of the negotiations was actually um, more pronounced than it has been in the years before. And since then, there has been also, you know, you'd often see uh, newspaper articles, you'd hear radio uh, uh, shows talking about these are the impacts of climate change, trying to even downscale the information, so not just at national level, but we do even have programs that are led by the Kenya Meteorological Department that try to ensure that uh, information is downscaled, you know, for the county sub-national level. And the role of the media in this is, is quite clear. So I think we, we see them as a key stakeholder in terms of um, uh, generating and uh, disseminating climate information. Okay, thanks, Maggie. Yeah. Um, on the question, and I actually forgot to add during my talk, is that South Africa does have the Green Fund, 
which is administered by the DBSA, and I mean, there's been the articulation by government to increase that. So there is that. Um, public support, there, there is quite a bit in South Africa. The media plays a role in, in um, yeah, sharing what's, what's been, like when, when there's NDC events or so. But there is the issue, and it's come up quite often, is that there isn't transparency around what's being shared and how it came to that point. So, so there is that bit of a niggle. <coughs> Yeah. Neil, in, in the research for this, did you come across any good models of accountability mechanisms or citizen-led accountability in relation to NDCs? Because that's a question that comes from Claire Blanchard on, on, online. If I can just very quickly comment on all three, and so starting with that one, um, the involvement of local NGOs and, in fact, the private sector features both in terms of the development of NDCs across these countries and as significant implementation actors. So uh, you have to go to the country level to, to dig further. Um, I just wanted to pick up on Tracy's interesting and I think potentially um, yeah, I'm not sure where that whole discussion is going to go. Do remember all the NDCs that we've reviewed as part of the study date from 2015. So all the intended nationally determined contributions simply became their nationally determined contributions on, on ratifying the Paris Agreement. It's too early. And I, I think that could potentially become quite a disruptive space if it's not managed well. And, and if I can just, you know, as an outside observer, comment on the role of public support, I'd be really interested to know whether NDC commitments are appearing in party manifestos. <laughs> what is the scope for building cross-party consensus on climate change within um, um, at, at country level because my sense is that that's as challenging in the UK as anywhere else. I can't quite remember the, the um, emphasis given to climate change in any of the major um, political parties' manifestos in the recent general election here in the UK. So um, it's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. No, nice one. You have an election coming up in Kenya, Meg, but we won't go there. Claire, quick comment, then we'll go for another round of um, questions. Yeah, quick, quick comment on the conditional and conditional. Um, I mean, I haven't seen any kind of twin-track approach to that in countries, but um, I think what I have heard is around the kind of taking a step back from that and thinking about how you actually cost the different adaptation and mitigation actions that will deliver on the commitments. So there's the kind of step back as well. Um, and then in terms of the role of the media, yes, this, this came up last week, actually, and it was kind of recognised that there is a role for the media, but at the moment, um, if, if they kind of mapped out what engagement's been done to date as a generalisation, not really engaging with them in as much as, as there's potential to do. Okay. Let's go over here. There's a microphone here. Ron had his hand up, and the lady behind you, and then Tim. <coughs> Three questions. Hi, Ron Benioff with the Low Emission Development Strategies Global Partnership in the U.S. National Renewable Energy Lab and 
congratulations on a, a nice framework for NDC implementation and, of course, the progress that we're all learning from in, in Kenya and South Africa. Um, as Shinaz mentioned, I think a, a key theme to me that's sort of underrepresented in the report is the role of governments in mobilizing private investment. Um, in fact, I would assert, and I'm interested in the panel's reaction, that that may be the most important uh, role that governments can play. Um, most of the resources for NDC implementation will come from the private sector. Uh, I've seen estimates that to achieve the renewable energy commitments in the NDCs across countries will require over $5 trillion. Clearly, that can't come from public funds. And I, th and I think governments have a vital role, a role to play in terms of working on strengthening policies and regulations, work on financial de-risking instruments, work on um, attracting and mobilizing direct private sector commitments and investments. So I'm kind of curious from the perspective of the panel, would you agree that when we talk about strategies for NDC implementation, we should put at the top or near the top of the list the role of governments in unlocking private capital? Thanks. Lady Thanks. behind you, uh, Ron. Hi, I'm Rachel from Restless Development. Um, we know that we're sort of living in a time of peak youth. You know, there's more young people living in the world than ever before. Um, and when we talk about these things, we've got to think about their future and their commitment to these things as well. And I think Claire talked about um, sort of when we're speaking to key stakeholders and are we engaging at the right levels and making sure that the right people are involved at every stage. Um, I just wondered if anyone um, wanted to talk about sort of youth engagement, what's going on in terms of youth leading these changes and being involved um, at all levels. Uh, we know it's happening with the Danish government, Danida, um, that the youth are getting involved and with the Finnish government as well. So I'm just intrigued on that part. Okay, thank you. Tim, did you want to add to that little trio? Um, Tim Ashvai, I'm shortly to be from the, the climate group. Um, I mean, one of our major areas of work is with the subnational level, um, and in, in particular with your reference to the, the G19 um, through the Under Two Coalition, in, in, uh, which is led by Governor Jerry Brown uh, of California. Um, Shanaz, you've referred to the importance of, of the provincial level in South Africa, and, and Maggie, <coughs> we've worked on the county level stuff. I was just wondering if you could say anything more about what the research showed out around implementation and driving out implementation of NDCs at the sub national level is it too early to say and and what confidence do we have around the the role and engagement I, I was very struck around the issues around equity as because that 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 really is that's where the rubber hits the road I feel so yeah youth a nice um, question on youth but really yes private sector and subnational I mean to be fair fair to the our colleagues these are nationally determined contributions and the starting point has been a conversation at national level, and that's been the case for the work of CDKN as a whole. But we're acutely aware that the environment is changing fast uh, and countries need to engage these stakeholders. Um, Neil, do you want to... Was there anything in there that, that can enlighten us? I mean, I think you and I were talking precisely around Ron's point about the balance of where the money is going to come from uh, in advance of this meeting. Um, you might express it differently. Or do you fully endorse Ron's input? No. 
I think it's a fair comment that this framing has not highlighted the potential role for private sector action. Um, we began with a public sector-led model, I suppose is the short answer. So I would just accept that is that's an area that uh, warrants um, a lot more attention, and there are co colleagues here at ODI who are very much engaged on that issue. I think it's, um, it's very country-specific. Um, the role played by the private sector in Somali, in um, South Africa is probably quite different from the role played by the private sector in Ethiopia or Somalia, but I'd be interested to hear. Um, on the sub-national level, all I can say in terms of this particular piece, it's a research gap. We didn't really have the resources to go there, despite the fact people continuing to emphasize that implementation will require capacity at the local government level. Um, and just a quick observation on youth engagement. If there's ever a public policy concern that is inter an intergenerational challenge, this is it. The majority of people in this room will be dead before the major global impacts of climate change. I certainly will be. So, you know, to me it is an issue for uh, how to engage youth, how to get people to think about public policy that goes beyond the immediate five-year policy cycle and emergencies. It's a very difficult one. Shay, any, anything to add on the sort of Tim's question on the, the capacity. I mean, I think you've dealt with this issue of counties in Kenya. Yeah. We had a CDKN program looking at the NDCs at subnational level in parts of Peru, and of course, one's confronted with the capacity constraint. Yeah. South Africa must have a better capability than yeah. some countries. So, oh yeah, sorry, sorry about. Um, so yeah, so referring to the like the local level implementation. Um, in the South African context, most of implementation is done through the provinces. So, so they, in terms of the devolution of power, they do have accountability, for example, housing, water, energy. But it's not yet speaking to the NDC. So, and I think that will take time but for now, and because the NDC, I mean, it's it's quite new, it's fresh. So, so those are not the conversations that hap that's happening. It's more about equitable service delivery at a local level. Those are the conversations. So, yeah. That's fine. Do you have a comment? Um, perhaps to touch on the question from uh, Rachel on youth engagement. Um, so when the NDC was being prepared in Kenya, uh, we do. We did have um, youth representation through uh, civil society, and that was through. We have the African Youth Initiative on Climate Change, and another known as the Greening Kenya Initiative, and both of those are youth-led uh, organisations. And um, I think going forward, that that will be consistent because, as I mentioned, our constitution calls for uh, stakeholder engagement at all levels. And the, the presence of the youth is, is, or the need to represent the youth is uh, recognized. Um, I think just to touch briefly on Tim's question about uh, the sub-national level. Um, 
implementation of NDCs at the subnational level. I'd say while this is not yet, um, we may not be able to start seeing results yet. We do know that, for example, in Kenya, there has been quite a quite a bit of activity at the subnational level, supported by uh, DFID in Kenya, and they've been working in the arid and semi-arid co uh, counties, or so, you know the the arid and semi-arid subnational uh, counties, and trying to encourage uh, bottom-up participation in terms of identifying what are the impacts of climate change and then trying to package these as um, investable uh, ways that you can then attract investment to tackle these challenges. And some counties have gone ahead to then uh, develop adaptation committees, uh, which have representation from both the public sector but also the, the stakeholders, the communities. And they then put forward the, the proposals for funding from the county government and say, you know, we need, for example, one million shillings to establish water pans to ensure that there's water access during the dry areas. So that's a kind of engagement we've been seeing across seven counties, quite a successful project <coughs> led by the Adaptation Consortium. And I think there, there are plans now to scale that up across uh, different counties. There's two interesting observation stroke questions from the online participants and I go to the right hand end of the room for some <laughs> questions. John Waruri who works for the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation reflects I would truly wonder to what extent INDCs can be described to be bottom up having in mind the fact that we're looking at very different bottoms which is kind of a reminder that, uh, that contexts matter enormously. Um, and then there's also a question from Elizabeth Reich from Action on Climate Today in relation to the, the synergy between the SDG implementation and the NDC implementation. I think that is an important and potentially an institutionally knotty question where you get different ministries, as it were, leading this. I don't know whether this has come up at all for you, Claire, in the conversations you've been having or in the context in South Africa or elsewhere in Africa, but it's a practical issue. Keep that in mind, uh, and I can go down the far end here and see whether any questions. Lady here, and then we've got Ram from Nepal. Thank you very much. Um, the report is very rich. Um, I have two points uh, to clarify for me. Sorry, I have voice issue like Neil as well. Um, can you um, say who you are? I'm sorry, I'm Pauline Oti. I'm in the development field, okay. international, and a member of Chatham House. Um, the role of the development partners weren't highlighted, although it's, maybe it's implied already because you've just mentioned the FID, what they're doing in Kenya. I think that should really come up quite yes. strong, okay. especially as catalysts and in, also in capacity building. Most yeah. of these countries, we don't have um, resources or the capacity to develop even the national plan of action, the multi-sectoral one. Uh, development partners could be helpful. Yeah. And besides the resources for, for doing this. The second point is we have to be cautious um, in placing these multi-sectoral plans at the highest level, political level. For example, if I say some people place it at the presidency, but you now find when you have, for example, um, a country with Muslim, Christian you know, dynamics, if you place it um, at the highest level in the presidency, uh, if it's a Christian president, as we had, one country had during the population program, it was fine. Uh, World Bank gave even $78 million to Nigeria for that purpose. 
But when a Muslim president took over, they saw the population program as a means of controlling the family size of Muslims. Yeah. So um, that money just, you know, in fact, half of the money wasn't used and had to be withdrawn, taken to another country. Mm -hmm. So we have to be very, very cautious. We place these programs, especially multi-sectoral ones, in a very neutral okay. um, place. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. To your right, uh, Ram, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Ram. I'm from Nepal. I work as a country engagement lead for CDK in Nepal. Uh, Thank you very much for uh, this uh, enlightening uh, presentations and uh, uh, discussion. I have just a couple of uh, queries. That is something that I brought from uh, from Nepalese experience. Uh, these all these uh, ten points are uh, very valid, and there is no question on this. Or we don't need these, or the, uh, you know, the, all these are valid. But couple of points, just uh, like uh, you know, this uh, you mentioned about the re uh, reporting and uh, monitoring and reporting. Uh, from our experience, that the probably you have mentioned in your uh, in, in this uh, book, but how we are going to evaluate and how we are going to learn is also quite important. You know, just uh, this is this is not one uh, one cycle of doing things. When we talk about these. Mm how we make success of this NDC implementation means that we have to, we have uh, probably the iterative process and then uh, in this, this iterative process, how we are going to include, probably that you have in, in your book, but uh, yeah, just would like to know from you. The other questions that I, uh, just my query is, uh, <coughs> when we talk about this uh, NDC, and since last 20 years or 30 years that we have different uh, development uh, uh, intervention. And uh, this suddenly we know this climate change and NDC is very important. But what do you find that this, this is something different than other intervention? You know, this we know this is, this is weak problems, it's complexity, uncertainties. But in terms of implementation of uh, this kind of program, then what new or additional uh, lens that we probably yeah. need. I think that is also quite important. Uh, the other point is, uh, again, uh, <coughs> it's a continuation of this, but what are the push and pull factor for these implementations of NDC? You know, this, yes, we we have to, we need this and that, and okay, if we, we have this, and then we have very clear program logic, but in terms of implementation of NDC, especially in the developing countries and rural area, there are lots of other push and pull factor. Yeah. I think that is also quite important when we talk about the success of the NDC implementation. And the, the last point from my side is that we talk about the inclusive process. We talk about government, national government, sub-national government. We talk about private sector. But in developing countries, there are lots of community initiative as well. You know, the, then how we are going to uh, involve that kind of initiative in NDC implementation process? I I notice, especially in Nepalese case, that's the community forestry, and maybe that we have also other participatory irrigation management system as well. I mean, how how those kind of uh, you know initiative um, can be uh, integrated in this process? I think uh, I would like to know those. Uh, 
those uh, issues. So Ram, I, we, I expect the panellists won't answer all those very nice challenges, but we've got opportunities to discuss them more over the next few days. But I, I mean, I thought the point about learning cycles was really important. This NDC is, is the start of a, a cycle of NDCs and um, countries will be submitting further rounds. So I think that's a really important reflection. Clearly, this is a contribution from CDKN and ODI into that learning process, but thinking ahead. But I think I mean, I particularly like your question, what's distinctive? We've been in this business for a while, uh, but climate brings something new. What's distinctive about this NDC process that we, we might be pulling out? I found both of those very intriguing questions. Do any of the panellists want to pick up on those or anything else that's been mentioned from the floor or on the line? Anything here? Claire, feeling brave? Um, yeah, just to respond on uh, Elizabeth's um, question about SDG implementation yes. and, and NDC synergies, um, I think the, the kind of place in, in, in this report where that comes out is around um, the kind of understanding of local development needs. And, and I think another aspect is around um, engagement. And, you know, one of the challenges is how you engage sectoral ministries when climate isn't necessarily their day job. And I think one of the ways we've done this in other CDKN work in the past as well has been around um, articulating what the co-benefits are. So, you know, this isn't just about adaptation or mitigation. It's about resilience. It's about poverty alleviation, health, education, etc. And And talking to, to different people in the language of, of, of where they're at and where they can see they have a contribution to make um, in this space. Uh, and then just on Pauline's um, point about the role of development partners, abs absolutely. I think there's a great need for technical assistance uh, and, and capacity support. And what we've been doing with our pilot projects where we've been um, using the NDC guide as a, a readiness tool is working with governments to identify, you know, from that assessment, what are the needs, um, what what could then go into an NDC implementation plan, and what could usefully go into a, a kind of a capacity or technical assistance plan, and to use it in that way. Shay, any comments on this round? Two quick um, uh, comments. First, um, in response to Ram's question, what is new? I think words actually matter here. What we're looking at are nationally determined contributions. And each of those words means something in this context. And so, you know, I draw out of it as an outside observer, it's what national governments are prepared to do. That's what's driving this. And that sort of also then speaks to the role of development partners. I'll actually, um, you know, um, be um, argumentative here. I, I don't see why the role of development partners should be any greater highlighted than the role of local NGOs or the, the role of the, the private sector. Development partners in this context are just one of the implementing actors. And, you know, it's trying to draw a line on the development paradigm that we've lived under for the last 50 years and what might have been appropriate during that time mm -hmm. and what should be the paradigm for national responses to climate change for the next 50 years. Um, Short one. Okay, we go. One to the question on um, 
from Pauline, I believe, on the question about placing uh, nationally determined contributions at the highest level. Um, you know, the case uh, from Kenya is such that by, you know, having the president as the chair of the National Climate Change Council, and even as we've seen in the last few years, having climate change being included in his, his talking points, in his key speeches, it actually helps in raising the profile um, of you know, environment and climate change uh, matters. It actually strengthens the role of the Ministry of Environment. So for us, we don't see it as, as a hindrance, but actually something that um, brings together the attention of all the other ministries that are usually you know, the more high, highly placed ones. Um, and then quickly on SDG implementation, the, what we've seen in Kenya is that um, SDG implementation has been placed under Ministry of Planning and Devolution. And uh, the advantage of that is that the national development plans and county integrated development plans are also led from those ministries. So you then start seeing uh, climate change and SDGs being considered in uh, the development planning process. I've got time for a couple more questions. If there are any from the floor, if not, we'll wrap up. So we've got Andrew, this gentleman, you. Short, short interventions, please. Uh, Andrew Scott from, from ODI. Um, thanks very much to, to, to all the panelists. I, I want to try and link some of the points that have been made uh, to where we are with the current state of the Paris Agreement. So, so we've had comments about uh, the NDCs, that there will be a cycle of revisions yeah. and under the Paris Agreement, an expectation that those will be more ambitious. Neil's point that these are nationally determined contributions, contributions committed by national governments. Tracy's point about some of that's conditional and some of it's not. And Claire's point about MRV being quite important. Mm. The Paris Agreement, the, the details of the Paris Agreement, have not yet been finalized. Yeah. So there is debate yet to be had about what is expected to be the content of an NDC in the future. Yeah. Yeah. There is debate to be had about how those NDC commitments are going to be reviewed internationally. So I just wanted to ask the panelists to, to reflect and, and, and say whether in any of their, their conversations about NDC implementation, whether the Paris Agreement and, and the negotiations that are carrying on in, under the UNFCCC have had any bearing on current thinking in, in, in implementation. It's worth noting that Neil and Claire took the development of this project to the intercessionals. Behind you, can you pass the mic back? Um, to test this with negotiators. So, you know, uh, hopefully that's been an enriched dialogue there. But great points, Andrew. Yes, please. Could you introduce yourself? My name is Mohan Singh from India. Uh, there was a mention about the lack of uh, mention of climate change <coughs> policy in election manifestos. Oh, yes. Also, there was a mention about engaging the youth. Does the panel have any, any notion, any ideas about engaging, mobilizing public opinion with social media. Okay, no, that's a nice, it's a very specific point. Thank you, yeah. Okay, uh, great discussion, by the way. And uh, just two quick questions, if I can. Um, the first one is, probably to uh, Shanaz and Margaret, is how do you tackle the biggest climate emitters in the private sector successfully? I'd be very interested to know that. And the second one, I'd be very interested to know, probably more um, directed towards Neil and Claire, is how can you improve um, data collaboration between countries and improving resilience towards tackling climate change? Yeah, those are four really great questions, some highly specific. Andrew sort of was doing a kind of 
synthesis wrap-up, I thought, which is very handy. We only have four minutes before promised um, refreshments outside, so I'm going to go to each of the panellists to draw out what they wish there. Let me start with you, Claire. Thanks. Um, I think I'll respond on Andrew's point about the expectations of future NDCs, and I think um, what came out for me last week was around you know, this ambition to ratchet up in, in NDC2 and how how realistic will that be? Or might it be that actually the next NDC is just actually grounded on better data, the targets are, are better, um, and it's, it's a more realistic ambition than maybe what we, we have now for some countries? Thank you very much. Shay, there was a bit of an industrial yes. swipe there, <laughs> which was a good one. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to respond to that one and to particularly draw on the example in South Africa of the National Business Initiative where they sit outside of government, but they've got government's ear and big businesses' ear as well. And they often facilitate dialogue between the two. So they're the interlocutor. And I think that's the important um, takeaway around how you engage with your big emitters. Maggie, any experience on social media in Kenya or any other points? Um, yes, sure. So in response to the question on social media, uh, well, there's not been a specific um, social media campaign on climate change. What we have seen is that, you know, linked to the, the media training that happened, there's now this awareness of the different media channels that exist, and not just your traditional media of books and, and uh, even just websites. So there's increased use of Twitter, uh, Facebook, um, and, and I think that's meant to grow, particularly for Kenya, which is... Uh, technologically advanced, so we have quite good internet speeds and coverage, and even the uptake of mobile phones. I think we have about 70% uh, uptake of, of mobile phones in Kenya. Neil, last words from you, and I'm going to sort of wrap up after this. Um, considering I'm still in this sort of the haze of the cold in my head, so it's not going to be very um, coherent, probably, but in response to Andrew Scott's comment about the link to the Paris Agreement, I suppose what I'd observe is the INDCs were in fact prepared with minimal guidance, direction, what have not. Um, and so I would re return the question, where should the drive for standardization come from and whose purpose does it serve? Perhaps if there had been a top-down heavy um, UNFCCC template given for NDCs, adaptation would not have appeared. So I think, you know, there is a balance here in thinking about how these things go forward. That's great. Well, look, apologies if I've not been able to pick up on your question or for those online uh, and for those in the room. We do, I think, have an opportunity for lunch served in the lobby area. So do stay and have conversations with the panellists. I'd like to thank Neil, Claire and uh, Katie Booth uh, for their work on this report, 10 Propositions for Success. I think we'll all take it home and digest it and please share it um, uh, in hard and soft copy. Uh, it, I think it works well. I think no one's rejected uh, th these propositions. Um, uh, Ram was the only person who courteously said they all worked, but I think they do. There's more in it. I mean, there's, there's a whole set of challenges. Each, each of these throws up a whole set of issues, um, such as engagement with the private sector. That's come out strongly. I think how this sits in the cycle of learning which is live with respect to NDCs, which is sort of governed by the UNFCCC process, is a really important one. As CDKN 
um, if I can speak for ODI, of course we will continue to engage with that process and seek opportunities to feed into that process to maximise how the parties, the formal members and those who engage around the process, that's think tanks such as ODI, uh, programmes such as CDKN, um, uh, NGOs and private sector lobby groups, um, of which all are represented in this room, uh, will take this forward. So use it, please. Build on this. This is, this is a very useful starting point. Uh, and so I'd like to thank um, Claire, Shanaz, Neil and Maggie very much for spending the time and leading this conversation so brilliantly. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.